Welcome to the Westside Investors Network. Win your community of investing knowledge for growth. This is the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast for real estate professionals by real estate professionals. This show is focused on the next step in your career, investing. Thank you for listening. And please, if you like our content, rate us on your podcast provider. Just a quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are for educational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any shares or securities, make or consider any investments or take any other action. Welcome back to another episode of the Deal Deep Dive segment on the Westside Investors Network podcast. I'm your host, Trent Werner. In this segment, our featured guests will share their unique stories on a specific deal they've invested in. We will dive deep into finding the deal, financing the deal, writing an offer, and the due diligence. Do us a solid and smash that subscribe button, leave us a rating, and share this episode. And now, let's dive deep. All right, Jeff Stevens, thank you so much for joining the Deal Deep Dive segment of the Westside Investors Network podcast today. We are going to talk about a fiveplex that Jeff did. It has a lot of intricate variables and facets with it, so I'm excited to get into that. Before we do that, Jeff, I'd love for you to share a little bit about you, your background, and ultimately how you became a real estate entrepreneur. Yeah. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here. So this year is my 20th anniversary as a full-time entrepreneur. For the first 10 years, I had a marketing and branding agency. So for the last 10 years, I've been exclusively doing real estate, investing full-time. And I had been doing it a little bit on the side before. So my wife and I started, we bought our first property probably about 17 years ago. And it was just a side thing, like it was for a lot of people. And, you know, we'd buy a property and then we'd make some money in our business and buy another property. And I thought, oh, this is pretty cool. And always in the back of my head, I'm like, hmm, it'd be really nice to do this more than part-time. So as I kind of got to a point with my first business where I thought, you know, I feel like I'm not learning as much anymore. I'm starting to get a little bored. It was a pretty easy decision for me to pivot towards doing real estate full-time. Now, there's a big learning curve in trying to figure out how to do it full-time, certainly, but that's kind of how I got to where I am now. So we had maybe probably about six rental units or so when we started. So it wasn't starting from a dead stop, but it was you know, trying to figure out at that moment, how do you make a living doing this? Were there any parts of your marketing business that correlated with real estate? It's a great question. And it's so funny because at the time, I would have told you no. And for quite a while, I kind of thought no, but I do see more and more today, but more clarity looking back. That part of my entrepreneurial journey and the consulting I did with that business actually has helped quite a bit. And I did a lot of speaking actually in that phase of my entrepreneurial life that I'm seeing that come back now in my real estate life too. So yeah, there are some interesting threads there that I didn't expect. I would imagine, I mean, just running a business in general teaches you a lot of lessons and skills. And when you go from having a marketing business and then wanting to do real estate full time and make a living off of it. And that's your sole revenue generator at the time. There's got to be something there that says, Hey, I'm going to run this like a business, not a part-time you know, side hustle or hobby for that matter. So I'm sure there was a lot of valuable skills that you had coming into it that maybe other people don't when they're first getting started. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I think there's a lot of stuff that was very helpful. On the other hand, I would say that was a service business 100% margins, sort of low debt kind of a business. And this is so totally different that it, a lot of I brought over a lot of those lessons. But at the same time, there's been a fun learning curve because it, this is just a, such a different type of business now. Absolutely. So before we get into the deal we're going to talk about today, where is your current real estate business sit at? Are you still at six units or have you added to it in the last 10 years? 
Yeah. So I do mostly buying long-term holds, not aggressively. I'm not a high volume kind of guy. This is what I do full-time, but you know, if we can buy a couple deals a year, maybe do an opportunistic flip here and there too, I will certainly mix those things in. I have assigned a couple deals here and there, but that's not a, a main focus for me. So we have probably about 35 rentals now. And yeah, and I continue to, you know, buy a little bit here and there. And now I'm helping other people kind of learn this unique way of real estate investing that I practice. Very nice. Very nice. Well, let's dive into the fiveplex. Was this, I'll let you talk about, I'll let you talk about. So my first question for you is what deal are we talking about? What are the, you know, obviously everyone knows it's a fiveplex at this point. So it's five units. How did you find the deal when you were first looking and how did you underwrite it? Yeah. So I found the deal the same way I find all my deals, which is via what I call thoughtful direct mail. So everybody's seen and probably even received letters, you know, like we buy houses type of letters. The only thing my marketing has in common with that is like stamps and paper, but everything else about the message and the strategy and the thought process, the spirit of it, the tone is very different. So I just sent this person a letter and he called me back. And to me, underwriting is it's always got to be a multifaceted thing. I do I have, you know, templates and things like that? Yes, absolutely. But I feel like that can be very, very one-dimensional. So I think it's always important to sort of metaphorically walk around the property and you know, literally walk around the property too, but walk around the deal and look at it from lots of different angles and find, you know, besides like a normal sort of rental pro forma, which of course, you know, I do like anybody else would, but I call it find the awesome. To me, every deal we do has got to have one thing and more is better, but at least one thing that is absolutely Awesome. This is like in the algebraic equation of real estate investing. This is X that we're going to solve for X. Once I found the awesome thing, we're going to design the deal around capturing that primarily. So my underwriting process, I try to, I guess, maybe you'd say a 360 degree sort of approach, big picture. For this deal, you mentioned before we started our conversation that there's some creativity when it came to the financing side of this. When you were underwriting this deal, did you underwrite it with, you know, conventional loan, I'm going to buy it with 30 year, or I guess it's five units. So commercial lending, commercial financing, in addition to some of the creative avenues that you ended up taking? No, I actually didn't need to because very quickly in this negotiation, we got to a level of clarity that seller financing was going to be a part of this. So which I should say to back up, all the marketing I do is to people. Seller financing is much more about the people than the property. And so I send my letters to people who there's a reasonable chance that they would be good candidates for seller financing because that's definitely my preferred way to go. So I started with that premise in mind. This person called back and it really only took a couple, I mean, really minutes of conversation, which is uncharacteristically fast to be honest, but minutes of conversation to kind of unlock that seller financing was going to be the thing that worked best for them and worked best for me. Okay. So let's talk about that. When Well, first of all, what was the purchase price when you acquired it? And how did this seller financing come into play with that? Yeah. So I think we tied it up for about 850. I want to say we closed it about 830 after some adjustments throughout the inspection period. But so this seller called me and he said, you know, Jeff, it's on the phone. So my strategy is I get somebody on the phone. They call me back for my letter and I want to establish rapport, but then I want to get the heck off the phone as fast as I can in favor of meeting with them in person. I don't want to do this over the phone. I want to upgrade the type of communication to an in-person conversation. But in this first couple minutes, he says, yeah, Jeff, the county tax assessors got this listed at a million dollar value, but I think that's just out of sight. 
Those were his words. So I had to, just like everybody, bite back the temptation to assume I knew what he meant. So I said, oh, well, what do you mean it's out of sight? And he said, I just can't, I can't imagine how it could possibly be worth that much money. So if I had jumped in there and said, oh yeah, well, everybody knows the assessor's value is low. I would have completely shot myself in the foot. But so I, you know, oh, it's too high. Sure. Totally understand. Well, you know, how about we meet tomorrow, come over, does 10 a.m. work? So I go to their house the next day and I start chatting with them. And I call this process solving the person. So I'm asking questions to understand what their perspective is on their property, on their situation, on the world, on the market. What do they think would be the best thing for them? And so I ask them what I call the magic seller relations question, which is effectively like, hey, if I hand you a magic wand and you just wave it, this sale of this property just turns out perfectly exactly as you dream of. What does that look like? Help me understand what perfect looks like. And he just proceeded to say, well, you know, we have this big capital gains tax problem. And so we'd like to get a small amount of money down. We'd like to receive payments over time. We'd like to go that to go on for about 10 years. And that would solve our capital gains tax problem. So it was really easy in this case by asking the right questions to very quickly unlock that this was the best thing for them. And of course, is what I wanted to. And this might be kind of going down a rabbit hole here, but when it comes to seller financing and knowing that the seller has or doesn't want to have a large capital gains tax, when you're structuring that, what do you look for? What does a seller look for in terms of down payment amount and the payment structure? Is it principal and interest? Is it interest only? Mm -hmm. Dive into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So if somebody is really, really averse to paying capital gains tax, this will help them control the timing of when they get that tax bill. So like they can take the tax bill and punt it way into the future. They could take it and kind of feather it out over the course of a long time. Every deal is different because every seller is different. But when it comes to down payment, there tends to be kind of a sweet spot between, you know, every seller likes to feel like there's some skin in the game by the buyer. That's fairly universal. But the other side of that coin is, well, the bigger the down payment you get, the bigger next April's tax bill is going to be because now you're receiving your gain back, right? So those two things kind of hold a healthy tension. And so it's common in my world that it ends up being maybe roughly around 10%, like not as a perfect you know, formula, but roughly about that. And that is kind of what we agreed to sort of in this case. As for payments, so this is where like two things come into effect. One is, as you mentioned, the capital gains tax situation. If we have an amortized payment, then they'll be getting little bits of that gain back over time, and then their tax situation will you know, be accordingly. If we were to make payments that were interest only, this achieves two things. So one is it continues to punt their gain way into the future. They're not nibbling at the gain and paying a little bit each year. They're taking most of it besides the down payment and just pushing it way out to a balloon payment. But we exist here in the world of the West Coast. We exist in the world of Portland. Where cash flow is kind of, you know, even a good cash flow deal is still not that great by sort of, you know, comparing to other markets, I guess. So it's really nice that when as buyers, we can keep our minimum committed payment as low as we can to preserve our cash flow. Like my note says that I have the right to pay principal, but I have no obligation to pay principal. So that's the long-winded answer to the question is 10-ish percent down would be common. And that was about what happened here in interest-only payments. Got it. Okay. So you acquired the property for 850. It's five units. When you first took it down, what were the rents like and what was your kind of value add or long-term hold strategy or asset management strategy for taking this property down? Yeah. So is it safe to say that the question is kind of like, what was the awesome part about this deal? Exactly. What was your awesome in this deal? 
So this deal had a couple different awesomes. Like I said, I really only need one and I can design something around that. But this did have a couple different ones. So let's talk about kind of the most obvious one first, which is the sort of straightforward small multifamily value add. Let's say the rents were in the you know $900 to $1,000 range, and they could definitely be $1,500 units with some cosmetic renovation. So there was a lot of value add in terms of improving the, the NOI and maybe even lowering cap rate a tiny bit through some beautification efforts and things like that. To cut to the chase on that, I sold the property a year later for like uh, about a million one. So it was a good, like a multifamily flip. It was a good deal in that sense, but that wasn't the awesome. Like that was a really nice secondary awesome, but that wasn't the awesome. The awesome and the real reason I bought this property was because the seller had very clear goals around their capital gains deferral. We Not only did we get seller financing, but we were able to add what I call supercharged seller financing terms, just a little package of a few specific terms to the promissory note that make it way more powerful. So one of the things that we added here, like probably the the number one of these things that's most important and valuable is what we call a substitution of security clause. This person, I bought their property with seller financing because they wanted to punt their gain way into the future. What would happen if one year later I sold their property? I would totally hose their whole financial plan. That's not what they want. And that's not what I want. This is like a four, four and a half percent interest only loan for another 10 years. I don't want to get rid of this loan. Even if I sell the property, this is a great loan. Why would I want to pay that off? And they don't want to be paid off either. So seeing this problem in advance for them, but an opportunity for me is to pre-negotiate a term that allows us to provide a different piece of collateral for that loan if we were to sell or refinance their current collateral, which is the property I just bought from them. So what was I really buying here? I was buying two things. I was buying a fiveplex that had a lot of value add, pretty easy type of value add, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And I was buying an excellent block of financing, both of which are separate. And using my substitution of security clause, I can you know, use the scissors and cut those two things apart. There's no due on sale clause with this type of arrangement because they don't want the loan to be due. So I sold the property and made the profit on the flip, which was great. But like I said, it wasn't the main goal. The main goal was to acquire this amazing block of financing and use it elsewhere in my portfolio. So fast forward that year, we finished, you know, renovating the place, got it all released and all that. I sell it for, you know, a million one or right around there. And at the same time I sell it, I have found another property I want to buy. A small commercial building actually in Selwood. So just different part of Portland, but same side of the city. There's no seller financing in that deal. And even bank financing might be a little bit difficult, but guess what? I have this, you know, what was it, $800,000 loan or so, $750,000 loan that I can actually transfer to this other property. So when I bought the other property, I didn't have to go seek financing. I already had financing. I just had to move it from one of the properties I had to the new one. And it became my acquisition financing on the commercial building. Does that make sense? Kind of. It makes total sense. I've never heard of this before. And my mind is absolutely blown right now that this is, I mean, it's an unbelievable strategy. And <laughs> Huge asset. I have so many questions right now. I don't even know where to start. My mind is blown. So, first question when you have this clause in there and it's, you know, the loan is not due on sale. And I know you said you had the commercial building in Selwood that you're going to buy right away. Were you able to, 
I guess you held it for more than a year. Were you able to 1031 your proceeds from the sale into the commercial building? I did not do that. No. And actually, I think it was even a little bit less than a year when we sold it. So no, we did not end up using a 1031 in that case. Okay. And so because the loan's not due on sale, you were basically able to roll whatever the balance was just into any property that you had. And then you were able to use what, you know, capital or other financing for the rest of it, correct? Yeah. So if you think of this as like two simultaneous escrows, I have the escrow for the sale of the fiveplex and I have the escrow for the buy of the commercial building. Mm-hmm. The buyer's money comes into the escrow for my sale of the fiveplex, but there's no debt to be paid off. So this escrow has got a whole bunch of cash in it. Mm-hmm. And that cash can be distributed to me as long as the note has collateral. Like escrow is not going to distribute me a bunch of cash and leave the note uncollateralized by something. So what they did is they basically closed on the purchase of my new property at the exact same time that they closed on the sale of the fiveplex so that now there was an available new piece of collateral to secure the original note by. That's sort of how that works. And then just all the capital that was sitting in the account gets rolled over into the new one. Yeah. Yeah, really. It was like the buyer's money, the buyer of my fiveplex, their money ultimately ended up in the seller of my commercial building's pocket. Yeah. Okay. Flow through from one escrow to the other. And do you use this strategy still to this day? Yeah, all the time. This is my go-to number one thing. It's often in smaller denominations, you know, one, two, three hundred thousand dollars. This was seven or eight hundred thousand dollars. So it's a, in many ways, I feel like this was the best deal I've done because it had multiple awesomes and that note, it was so big and so flexible and portable. So since then, so the deal I'm telling you about here was like I don't know, five years ago. Last year, I went back to that same beneficiary and I refinanced the commercial building, but I don't want to pay them off. They don't want to be paid off. But so then guess what I did? Then I took what we call the slice and dice clause or the exchange of note clause. So like Trent, if I walked up to you and said, hey, could you break a 20 for me? You're like, sure. Here's a 10 and two fives, or here's a five and 15 ones or whatever. You made change for me. Well, I have the right in my note to go back to this beneficiary and say, my current balance on this note is, you know, just say 700,000. I have the ability to break this up. I'd like to break it up into two 300s and a 100. And then I'm going to give each of those individual collateral as well. And they said, okay, sounds good because we had pre-agreed to that. So then last year I did exactly that. So I ended up refinancing the commercial building taking that note and ultimately refinancing three more properties using that same note because of these critical flexibilities and flexibilities basically that I call supercharged seller financing that are negotiated in advance into the note. And now here's a word from our sponsor. Get things done while you're on the move. Learn more about working with a virtual assistant through offsite professionals. It's a great way to get all the things done that you need to get done. Have freedom in your time and streamline your life by automating your business. Stop spending time on the tasks that you can delegate and start spending more time on your superpower. Call us today at 503-446-3177 or visit our website at offsiteprofessionals.com. Uptown Syndication is now offering a syndication coaching program for you to take your real estate portfolio to the next level. This is your opportunity to have experienced syndicators, AJ and Chris Shepard, coach you on your way to controlling your real estate investing future. Our coaching program will provide you with the tools and framework needed to begin syndicating real estate in your target market. Go to uptownsyndication.com today to learn more. So you're basically able to 
you re cash out, or I don't know if you pulled cash out, but you refied the commercial building and then we're able to take cash out of three other assets and slide the first note from the fiveplex into those other three assets. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And cash out is totally possible. So you ask if I use this strategy in other ways and I do, and I'll tell you one of the most common ways I use this strategy. I'll just give you a hypothetical example. That's very realistic for me. Let's say I have a fourplex and it's worth, you know, like a million bucks and I owe 700,000 on it. So I've got $300,000 of equity and hopefully some cash flow. If you were just to go into, well, if you looked at your portfolio and said, sure, it would be nice to get some equity out of that fourplex. And you're like, oh, I think I'll walk into On Point Credit Union and just ask for a HELOC on my fourplex. They're going to say, no way, Jose, right? That's not how it works. But what if I were to go buy a single family home? Like maybe I go to the outskirts of town, like the outskirts of Gresham or someplace like that, where I could buy a property for like 300 grand. I buy a property with seller financing for 300,000, maybe give them $50,000 down. And I have a $250,000 note. I could buy that property and secure that note. Again, I bought two things. I bought the property and I bought the debt. I could then provide new collateral for that note, remove the collateral from being the house to being the second position loan on my fourplex. Okay. So now I've further encumbered. I haven't over encumbered, but I've further like I've Tetris the equity basically on my fourplex. Yeah. So it's got more debt, but the house now is free and clear. So then what could I do? I could sell the house. And like when you sell a house that has no debt, that's a really good day. You go to happy hour and you clink some glasses and you say, we just sold a house for 300,000. It doesn't even matter if we made a profit on it. We didn't have any debt to pay off. And so we got a big wire that day, right? So that's a typical for me, a typical strategy on how we utilize this tool of substitution of security in a strategic way. And that's basically what we did with the Fiplex. And so just about your hypothetical example here, when you're, and you basically financed hundred percent of that fourplex in this hypothetical example, correct? From an LTV perspective, upwards of a hundred. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. so, but because you have the right to these notes and this debt, you can put that in places that you see fit, like you don't have to have a bank saying, oh, you can only go up to 95% LTV and stuff like that, correct? Correct. So, but here's what we do because we still want to be ethical, thoughtful, responsible financially. So, when we set this up, this initial substitution of security clause, this provision we negotiate, we self impose two standards in there. We say we have the right to provide a different piece of collateral, but it has to meet two standards. The first one is there has to be equity that is more than the amount of the debt that we're going to place on the property. It doesn't say it has to be a lot, but there has to be some. And there has to be cash flow that exceeds the amount of the payment. So you could, in theory, leverage a property to 99% LTV, but only if it had enough cash flow to actually make the payment as well. So the reality, you know, if you start looking at this like mathematically, the reality is on the West Coast in Portland, you're going to run out of cash flow way sooner than you're going to run out of equity. So I have lots of properties where like I have three, four, five hundred thousand dollars of equity, but I could only place like another forty thousand dollars of debt on it because I have lots of equity, but only a little cash flow. So there's always one of those two things that's going to be a limiter. And I think if you went to the middle of the country, they'd have the exact opposite problem, right? They'd they would have cash flow for days, but no equity, right? Or not much equity to work with. That makes so, sense. So yeah. That's very interesting. Again, I've never heard of this strategy and it it's just kind of blowing my mind right now that you were able to do so much with 
one five plex, you know, to start this whole kind of snowball effect here. Yeah. It, and I know you talked about your mailers or your letters that you target these sellers or, or, you know, you have a list. How do you come up with the people that you're writing to? I mean, is it for sale by owners like everyone talks about? Or, I mean, do you, like, how do you find these people? Yeah. So I would say that there's two important answers to this question. Who do you identify to reach out to? And then what do you say to them? Mm. Who we identify to reach out to them? Like I said, I want to send letters to people who are likely to be reasonable candidates for seller financing. Because again, the seller financing is much more about the seller and their situation than it is the property. So who are the people who are good candidates for seller financing? Well, there's a few different things, but one of the biggest ones, which we already talked about, is capital gains tax People who, if they sell their property, it's going to be ugly and they're going to want to likely find some way to deal with that. Some people do 1031 exchanges, obviously, but not everybody wants to do that, right? A lot of people reach a point in their life like, real estate has been great to me. I love it, but I don't really want to exchange to another property because I'm just ready to spend my time and energy in a different way. So who has potential big capital gains tax problems? Well, non-owner occupants. And people who have owned properties for a long time and seen a lot of value change. So the answer is actually quite, I think the thinking is sophisticated, but the answer is simple. If we pull a list, like, and I just, I go to my title company partner and I say, we're your customer service people, please compile a list straight out of public records of, you know, let's, you know, in this case, like five to eight unit properties on the east side of town. The tax bills are mailed to a different address than the property address. That's sort of how we define, you know, absentee. Mm -hmm. And they've owned it for 10 or more years. It's a very simple list. And that list is sort of like creating a pond that says like, I'm going to go fishing in this pond. And I can't guarantee that every fish I catch in here is going to be the perfect fish I'm looking for. But there's a pretty good chance that a lot of the people who call me back are going to have these attributes. So that's the first thing. It's very simple. Long-term absentee owners of properties in the areas and the property types you want to buy in. But what you say, and I would say actually maybe more importantly, what you don't say is also extremely important. There's no way we want to send them a letter that says, I want to buy your property with seller financing. Please call me. We have to take a much more strategic and softer approach to that because this is like the number one mistake most real estate investors make, in my humble opinion, when it comes to trying to get seller financing deals is they just come in like that might as well be like stenciled on their forehead. Like, I want to buy your property with seller financing, which says like, this is all about me, my agenda. And it's just too obnoxious and sort of obvious. But if we ask good questions, we can oftentimes learn the right things from the seller so that when we propose seller financing back to them, I don't make offers ever. I make proposals. When I propose seller financing back to them, I can say, based on what you told me you were trying to accomplish, here's how I think we should structure this deal so that you can defer your capital gains, you can have income and all these things that you told me were important. Now, meanwhile, it is what I want also, but I'm not framing it as what I want. So we kind of have to slow down a little bit in these conversations and wait for them to tell us the clues for seller financing, and then use those clues to properly prescribe something that fits the diagnosis that they shared with us. And I think you said it very wisely. You said the thinking isn't sophisticated. It's just people approach it in the wrong way. I can't remember how you phrased that, but it's not a hard concept, but it's a delicate situation to navigate most of the time. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that I, you know, I'm kind of curious about, and I know you said you focus on seller carry and kind of getting creative. If you, you know, you're fishing in your pond and you got a bite and someone says, Hey, or like, 
they call you, which means that they obviously have been thinking about selling whatever property you wrote about. If they say, no, I'm only going to take conventional financing or, or I want to be paid out now, are those deals that you would still pursue or are you only looking for seller carried financing? Yeah. So I would say I'm always trying to find the awesome. If there is an awesome there that is not related to seller financing, I will still pursue it because there's a maybe another way I can get a win. You know, like, I mean, if there's a property, like, you know, a good example might be a single family house. I'm looking at it going, I could finish this basement with like 20 grand at a lot of square footage. It certainly improves the ARV. This isn't a seller financing thing, but I can get ahead financially. You know, I can get a good win out of this deal, even without that financing. I will still absolutely pursue that. To me, and this is what I always tell the people I get to work with, I will continue talking to a seller until they prove to me that they are like unreasonable. And unreasonable isn't about like how much they think their property is worth. Unreasonable is about how they're willing to interact with me. So if there's a person who is willing to engage me on the phone the way I want to, that is willing to say, yes, come on over, let's sit down on the couch and I'll make you a cup of coffee and we'll talk about this. I don't care if they think their property is worth a hundred thousand more than I do. That's too simplistic because I think we can kind of get over that. If the person is willing to engage me the way that I want to engage with somebody else, I will continue that conversation. And there are usually other ways we'll find to create something that is a good win for everybody. That kind of leads me to one of my last questions here is when you're using or you know navigating seller carried financing or seller financing, do you feel that you're able to maybe pay a little bit more for a property because you're so flexible with the terms versus you know on points lending? Mm-hmm. I can. I can. And sometimes I am absolutely willing to. But I want to point out that there's an assumption that a lot of people make in real estate, in the real estate investing community, which is that to get seller financing, you have to pay more for the property. Like there's actually kind of a whole suite of myths around seller financing. Yeah. Like seller financing means you'll be paying more for the property, or seller financing is great, but the rates are going to be higher. But or seller financing is great, but then the down payment is going to have to be really high. And all of that is predicated by like an assumption that if a seller had a different option, they would always choose to just cash out. So they're doing seller financing reluctantly. And that is so far from being the truth when you're talking to the right people. So would I be willing to overpay for a property if I got amazing terms out of the supercharged terms that I could move around? Oh yeah, I would. And sometimes I have, but I would say oftentimes we don't really need to. You can just pay a fair price, but yeah, I would say by and large, my my anything I do is not like I'm not a, you know, figure out the current market value and just subtract 30% and randomly make a throw out a number. I'd say we do probably often, I would say probably categorically, I have paid maybe 95%-ish of the retail value for something, but that wasn't, yeah, that wasn't like really the main part of the calculus. The main part of the calculus was like the seller financing package was awesome and I could live with the price. It was fine. I guess I just had this question pop up. When it comes to the terms, I know the, the five plex you said was 10 years, I want to say. Is there any prepayment penalty? Because obviously, like you said earlier, you don't want to hose these sellers and you know make their capital gains due a year later. But if there's if it comes to a point where five years down the road, you just, you know, you can't really find a place to put it, whatnot. Is there a prepayment penalty for these loans or these notes? 
It's a great question. It's a fascinating topic. The simple answer is no. I've never had a prepayment penalty. I mean, I have a couple of bank loans in my portfolio, and I think a couple of those had like declining, you know, prepayment penalties. Mm. But no seller financing loan I've ever done has had one. A couple of times it has come up by the seller saying, wait a minute, I don't want to get cashed out early. But here's the awesome thing about the prepayment penalty. The prepayment penalty is a signal that the seller is telling you for sure, I don't want to get paid off early. When they bring that up, if they bring that up, it just completely opens the door to say, I understand your concern. Yeah, you'd be hosed if you got paid off early. I don't want to see you get hosed. And we have a very good reasonable loan here. I don't want to be incentivized to pay you off either. I can't, and I've said this those couple of times that this has come up. I've said, I can't in good faith say, I will be a responsible steward of this property while voluntarily having my hands cuffed. I need to be able to maintain this property and structure the debt as a good steward of this ship for everybody. So I don't feel good about the prepayment penalty. I can't say yes to that. But I understand the spirit behind the prepayment penalty, which is you don't want a surprise payoff. So let's just accomplish that goal in a slightly different way. Let me tell you about the substitution of collateral provision. That makes perfect sense. <laughs> no further questions. <laughs> I mean, but it's Jeff- important, like it's unpacked carefully. Like, you know, you know, you just come in on day one and be like, here, let me just say all these things and have them go perfect. Like it sort of matters, like when you say these things and in response to what comments. And so there's a little bit of an art to like the unpacking of the conversation, but you're getting the, the gist of the big picture. Well, and that's what I was about to say. You definitely have done this a time or two and you've had these conversations because your responses have been, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't have anything to say back to him because you just hit it on the head. So your experience is, is very fascinating. And again, I've never even heard of this strategy and I'm sure many other people have not either. And it's just been, it's been very cool to hear the snowball. You're the first conversation that I've felt that has snowballed, you know, one purchase into multiple or multiple purchases even more through ways other than, you know, the cash out refi or the 1031 and that kind of thing. This seems like a very creative way of snowballing your portfolio and your business that you've built over the last 10 years. Did I miss any questions today or did I miss asking (laughs) anything that you felt like you wanted to talk about? (laughs) Thank you for those words. And I agree, actually, this strategy does, it helps you grow in a different way. And I would say a faster way by just being able to leverage leverage in a different way. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening to this podcast who have had the thought, like maybe they flip houses occasionally. Goodness, why can't this lender just loan me 400 grand? I'm going to use it on this property. I'll sell it. Then I'll just use it on the next property. Why do I have to apply for a new loan and underwrite it every time? Why couldn't I just recycle the money? This does that. You know, there are people listening to this podcast who have said, for crying out loud, I've got equity and cash flow in this non owner occupied property. Why don't any lenders loan in second position? Or if they do, the thresholds for LTV are so low, it's useless. Boy, if I had that, you know, I would accelerate my progress. And this strategy definitely kind of gets into those two areas where just gives us a lot more flexibility. Anyway, I don't think there's anything that you didn't ask. I was hoping to get to explain a lot of these key elements because this deal in particular, it's not as simple as like just buy low, sell high. There was a buy low, sell high component, which was also quite good, but it wasn't the best part. So I appreciate the opportunity to explain some of those less common aspects of how it worked. Yeah. I mean, I think myself and a lot of people are always thinking about what's my profit going to be on this? What's my proceeds going to be on a deal? And you thought about it in a completely different way that you, yeah, you got those proceeds, but you also got a, I mean, albeit debt, you got an asset 
that you can go use and leverage into other things and grow your portfolio, which was mind blowing to me. So I appreciate you diving into that with me. Is there a place that people can find you or you know connect further with you, Jeff? Yeah, I would say two things. One is I have a podcast as well called Racking Up Rentals, where I sort of talk about this approach and like all of the stuff we just talked about, like the technical financing stuff, it's all downstream of like a relationship oriented approach. Like none of this happens if you're working through brokers, frankly. None of this happens if you're sending we buy houses letters and taking a transactional kind of approach. Like it comes from connecting with real people and having a relationship oriented perspective. So anyway, the podcast Racking Up Rentals talks about that. And then I'm also probably overly involved on Facebook. So Facebook's a good place to find me on my personal page, or we have just a free group community called Rental Portfolio Wealth Builders, where we kind of talk about this you know, approach to doing things too, in the pursuit of building a rental portfolio. Very nice. We'll make sure those links are down in the description. Jeff, I appreciate your conversation and taking the time to share about your, your Portland fiveplex that snowballed into multiple different units. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Real Estate Professionals Investing Podcast on WIN, your community of investing knowledge for growth. We hope that this episode has increased your knowledge and added value to your path to freedom. If you would, please take a second to rate us so that we can get more great investors to interview. If you or someone that you know wants to be on, please visit westsideinvestors.com and fill out our form to be on the show. Thank you again and enjoy your day.